Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Emerging Stories podcast. Just wanted to say a, a thank you to everyone who sent in encouraging messages or who've shared on their social media, things like that. I'm honestly really so encouraged by everything that I'm hearing from you guys. So if you are enjoying these conversations, do just let us know. Do share it with people. Um, we'd love to hear from you. This next episode was actually the last conversation I recorded, but I just loved it so much I had to put it out sooner in the schedule. This is with a hero of mine and one of my oldest friends, Rosie. She and her husband, Jamie, are just the real deal, guys. People who take the call to follow Jesus and to love those on the margins seriously, and have done so from such a young age. So it is my pleasure to commend these guys to you. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, just a, a trigger warning. This is about fostering. And so for anyone who's had negative experiences with the whole care system, whether as a child or as an adult who has been involved in fostering or adoption, I uh, just want to give you a warning. I feel absolutely... No pressure to listen to this if you think it's going to be difficult to do so. But my hope is that even in all of the, the difficulty and the pain that comes with this stuff, that this conversation really encourages you. Let's jump in. So can you just start by introducing yourself, yeah. who you are, where you're from, what you do with your time? Yeah. So I'm Rosie. Um, I am married to Jamie. And we've got two beautiful children, Emmeline and Edward. Um, and we live just north of Worcester. And I spend most of my time looking after them. And it is full on and tiring and messy and fun and silly. Um, and I love it. I love it so much. I love my kids and then when I do have time um, when Emmeline's at nursery um, I'm also the kids pastor at our church which I also love in equal measure. So we've known each other since we were 15? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Um, which is 12 years? Many years ago. Almost yeah. 15. Um, ever since I've known you mm -hmm. all you've wanted to do is look after kids mm -hmm. and particularly vulnerable kids. Yeah. Do you know where that came from? Where that originated? Yeah, I think there's probably like lots of different parts, aren't there? It's like anyone's story. There's always lots of different elements that make up how you ended up where you are and why you love what you love and what makes you excited and what gives you passion. But I think take away the word children even, and it comes back to just my exposure to faithful people and what they poured into people. And I think I saw that demonstrated when my family walked into church when I was about eight years old. Um, I saw just amazing women teaching children about Jesus and loving children, but not just loving them for a year and then being like, oh, I'm not so keen on this ministry anymore. I'm not so keen on spending my time here. It was like year after year after year of pouring into children. And I was just exposed to that 
kind of faithful love of kids from mm. a really really young age so how did that kind of develop then over the years as you kind of go through your teens into your early adulthood are there are other major yeah. formative moments and I think again that thing of children it's always been there I've always loved babies I've always loved holding babies and stealing other people's babies and that's just what I've done and people would very very willingly trust me with them because for whatever reason I knew how, how to hold them properly and didn't feel awkward holding them and would just steal them from someone's lap at church and be at the back with their kid when it was crying and stuff and um, I loved how open and familiar that was for me as a kid so I was very very confident with children very very early on so I think there's that side of it that meant that I was just around kids a lot um but the other side of it was I think I've always been a very very sensitive person I was a very sensitive child and I was aware of what children had or did not have from a very early age especially around friendships and mm. um I just never wanted a child to not know that they were loved or not know that they had friends. And I think even if that wasn't yet formed into what that means to now look after more vulnerable children as an adult, that was definitely the heart when yeah. I was literally like 10, 11, 12. But then I'd also say that into my teen years, I went from one school to another school and they were polar opposites in terms of the type of people that were there. And my senior school experience was um, people and families from like every walk of life ever. Um, and I had friends who were very, very different to me. And I was exposed to pain and brokenness in families and uh, children very early on. And from like being maybe 13, people would call me mother hen. I was just like them mum and that's what they called me and so I think that identity very early on was there and mm. that kind of real compassion and love for my friends at that point was something that's definitely shaped my yeah. love for children yeah can you tell us about China yeah China so that's definitely a massive part of my story so I met Jamie when I was 15 is old and he randomly went to China with his sixth form and they yeah they went on a trip he came back absolutely loved it and I absolutely loved International China Concern because they had really good systems in place where it was Chinese caregivers looking after Chinese children and when they were being trained in the summer to upskill they would send over teams that were put on summer camps and so that's what we were doing there was a very effective purpose as to why you were there but that meant that you got a completely different exposure to a completely different culture a different need of your own um and so he came back loved it and that same summer that he came back my mother-in-law i don't even know if you know this but my mother-in-law gave me two books um and she didn't know they were from two separate people about china and she didn't know that the two stories completely crossed over mm. um which i was still look back on and i'm like oh my goodness um and they were about the same similar organizations doing a similar work in china which were looking after abandoned children with disabilities um and they knew each other they often looked after each other's children medically they provided different funding for it and so i read these two books absolutely lapped it up i read so many books like that when i was a teenager um that completely changed my life and then me being me 
there was an email on the back page of the guy that ran the organization in China. So I just emailed him, <laughs> 16 years old, and just was <laughs> like, huh? can I come to China, please? <laughs> I'd love to see what you're doing. I love the heart for what this is. I've read your book. And he replied within a week being like, yeah, sure, you can come this summer. Wow. And so that's how Jamie and I went again that second. So his second time, my first time. Mm. Um, we ended up going back to China for the first time. And so we visited their project and then also joined International China Concern again. And I'd love to tell you a bit more about that. Can I do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. please do. So this really links in to the shaping of where I think the calling on our lives has come from and the exposure to a different way of thinking and living and doing has come about because I was 17 years old and a group of us were only only 17 at the time and the caregivers are there doing the absolute best job they can but kind of take yourself back to kind of 1950s uh, institutionalized care of people who have medical impairments or disabilities or down syndrome or anything like this and they're all in these rooms according to their age and there was this team leader who's a big, big guy. He's called John, and he knows this. Big guy. And there's nothing in these rooms. And we went to the teenage girl room. And there, a 17-year-old me was exposed to probably the most severe cerebral palsy that I've seen um, in children or adults even. Um, and there was nothing really in the room. So they were lying on mats because just the way that the care is at that point in China... Um, there was like one adult to many, many children. And it was mm. more just about the existence in this room. And so they were on mats. And John makes a beeline for the child, probably who is the most nonverbal, unable to move by herself. And she's just lying there on the mat. And this massive man just gets on the floor and lies, lies next to her. And we're all stood at the door like we don't really know what to do this is day one we're just working out we're just being exposed to something completely different and he gets on the floor he's like lying with his arm like up on his face um and he begins to sing to her and mm. stroke her face and if you know anything about cerebral palsy it's like very, they have lots of conjectures and very tight muscles and tendons and it means that they're very very tense a lot of the time and so they have to have things like water therapy to make them relax but i watched in that moment <laughs> this guy who wasn't doing anything miraculous or huge or special he just got down into this tiny moment um and sang to her and loved her and valued her and i watched this child change from being tense and like not really sure and a bit confused because it's quite agitating, I think, when you're lying on the floor, actually, and you don't really know what's going on and there's new mm -hmm. voices that are speaking a different language in the room, um, to her smiling. And if you've ever seen, uh, well, any child smile ever, it's like the best thing in the world, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. absolutely genuine. There's no, like, fast behind a kid's smile. It's just they will only smile if they want to smile or they'll smile for a chocolate biscuit, I don't know. But, like, most smiles with kids are entirely genuine. Yeah. And that was, and that was the moment for me, the very initial moment, there's been lots since then of confirmation, where God revealed his economy to me. And what I mean by that is that in that moment, our team leader showed me that it is not about, for God, it is not about the masses. He stops for one. Mm. And the one matters because that little girl, no matter what she could or could not contribute to anyone in society, was worth it. Mm. 
yeah. and was made in his image. Um, and he didn't say anything to me. He didn't communicate that to me. I just saw it for what it was. Um, and that was enough for me to realise that people in this world are like what's actually important like mm. none of your stuff is important none of the things that you do are important it's actually if you're doing something and there are people involved that that's the interaction there that's important mm. um and it's not about what they can offer you or you can offer them um and i certainly didn't particularly offer anything overly special when we were there so that was like a really specific moment that stands out to me yeah i would love also to talk to you a bit about how I feel that that just completely connects to who I see Jesus as. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Am I allowed to do that? Yeah, That's yeah, great. Yeah, do it. <laughs> um, because I think when we look at Jesus, he always had this task, didn't he? He was always on his way doing something. He was going to talk in the temple or he was going to talk to a group of people or he was um, on his way to teaching the disciples a new lesson about something. He, he like, yeah, he had a really specific task. But so many stories in the Bible, he's just interrupted by mm -hmm. one person. And I just find that's just so beautiful that he's on his way and he's got his idea of what his day is going to look like. But Jesus, no matter what, when he was interrupted, everyone expected him to be like, oh, no, just send her away or, oh, don't touch, don't touch Jesus. He's like far too special for you to touch. Even his disciples who knew the whole reason, supposedly, why he was there. But Jesus would turn around and he was interrupted on his way in his day and he let himself be for a person that really mattered. Mm -hmm. And it was a person that everybody else had decided didn't matter mm. or was rejected or hurting or in pain or experiencing shame. Mm. And so I think those two things combined have, have kind of framed my desire to try and be like that mm -hmm. no matter what. One eyes to see those right in front of me. I want a heart that feels all it's supposed to feel. I won't let my soul grow cold. I'll be watching and waiting for the face of God. So thinking then about kind of coming out of your teen years into your adult years, did you then have a specific kind of idea of what it would look like for you mm. to start living this stuff out or was yeah. that kind of open to mm -hmm. whatever might happen mm -hmm. i think we're gonna land back in china just for two more minutes based yeah. on that question because um the last time that i went to china before i got married uh me being me most people were doing their second year exams and revising and my exams were in less than a month's time so it was easter and um, yeah, most people are studying, but I knew that there were 30 babies, about 20 to 30 babies in a room and three carers. And I was like, well, I've got a pair of hands. I can change a nappy. Let's go. I know the people, I can stay with them. But um, money was an issue. And actually you might remember this. This is where um, you're quite important in this story. And legacy is quite important as well. We'll touch on that in a minute, I think. 
Um, because I then sent out to very specific friends and family, could you be praying? I'd love to have finance to be able to do this. Am I right in thinking you were working behind a bar at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're working behind a bar, not earning very much money. Am I right? No, no. not at all. <laughs> you're just behind a bar, working hard. And I get a message from you saying, um, your flight's covered. I'll send you. And I think you transferred maybe that week the money for me to fly there. And that's really important because that has had an impact now on how my marriage, in, in my marriage, the legacy of money and how we go about dealing with money and giving because that act of faith enabled me to go. And then that trip, I spent time with a little girl who had Down syndrome and she couldn't sit up yet. She was two and probably like the floppiest you'd ever seen. She had no muscle tone yet. Um, and because there were so many babies, it was just the reality that she had to be in the cot. She'd be trampled if she was like laid out on the floor with the other kids. Um, and so I'd got there um, because of a, a gift, which is incredible. And I'll come back to that in a sec. But, um, and I was playing with her and I decided over this month okay what can I do I'll go in with a routine I'll support whatever the carers are doing but I'll look after this little girl called Shani and she's now been adopted actually which is amazing Mm. and I thought okay if in a month we can get her sitting up that means she can like look at her world she can interact she can smile she can practice eating by herself Um, and so that's just what I worked on for the month and over that month, I saw her sat up and smiling and interactive. Mm. And it came to the last day and I was sat there and I think she was asleep on me, actually. I'd done like loads of baby wearing and it was super precious. and It was just lovely. And she sat there asleep on me and I was praying and I started to cry. And I said, God, I don't understand. I'm about to marry a man who is in medical school for seven years in England. I feel like we should be here. I think... I'd be useful here it's obvious I'm not doing extraordinary things but these people and these children need just the simplicity of getting out of their cot every day Mm. and being interacted with Um, and in that moment I've never heard the voice of God audibly I always hear him through the word or through words of encouragement from other people or just that sense when you're listening to a song and I haven't heard the voice of God audibly since either which is really interesting and God said you can foster three words you can foster Mm. and so I was sat there holding this baby about to get married that summer um to a man who was in England for seven years doing medical school and he just said you can foster and I didn't know what it was I'd never really come across fostering before at all um didn't know anyone that fostered in my community and just had this overwhelming sense of okay okay I can go home now and I had no idea how that was going to play out Mm. but yeah that was a really key moment Wow. Mm. So how old are you when you got married? I was 20, 20 years old. And yeah, I told my husband when I got back from China that that's what we were going to do. I wasn't going to be a teacher. Mm. <laughs> I was going to be a foster carer. So being my usual self, I was Googling age 20, mm-hmm. how to become a foster carer and was very surprised to hear that you can be a foster carer age 21. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> bonkers. It is bonkers. So how did, how did Jamie respond to that? So this is what I always find interesting. I think I might have said this to you before, but I'm going to say it again now. People think I'm the crazy one, okay? I'm the one that's like animated and come up with all these things. And I'm like, yes, let's go and do this and take God at his word on this. 
but you have when you when you're married you have to tell your husband these things and then you have to have his backing and his leadership and so I'd go to him and say various things throughout our relationship and then into our marriage about things and Jamie is a yes man he's a yes I also take God at his word yes I want to live a life that is different and is of the call that God has put on us and so I told him this and honestly I can't specifically remember the reaction but it wasn't a bad one it was like all right Mm-hmm. all right then we'll look into this and so we did we mm. spent the next few months looking into what that might look like I told him that we wouldn't be mental enough to get married and then I'd turn 21 in the October and apply so I thought let's wait till January because then I don't look so crazy right <laughs> <laughs> completely nuts um and yeah he just said yes he was in the mid just to picture make pay a picture of you he was in the middle of third year of medical school Mm -hmm. so intense learning intense exams hospital placement and he still said yes so he's the crazy one not me i'd just like to put that out there i think it's probably a combination okay yeah fine good crazy though great combination yeah like he is he's the i'm the okay here's a vision and he's the how do we make this work and do it within a timing that no i was going to say timing that's sensible that's not true at all (laughs) Okay, so on that note, um, (laughs) how did your pursuit of fostering unfold? So, so by this time, I've been married in the August, I'm 21 in the October, and it goes to January, and I said, okay, in January I'm going to apply. Um, But there were a few things that we prayed about and said, I can see how this would be a bit uncomfortable if I'm just turned 21 and we've got a social worker that generally lots of social workers kind of in their 40s um 50s um or our parents themselves i just said i think that would be a weird dynamic going through what is a six-month interview in the fostering process of someone who could be my mother (laughs) so i said jamie i would just love if it was a guy if it was a male social worker who wasn't particularly old and was open-minded And so we apply to um, an independent fostering agency in our community that also was open about having Christian values and was happy for us to be openly Christian, which was important for us. And they said, yep, sure, we'll have a conversation about it. I'll take it to the manager because this is a bit curveball. I was like, don't say. And they said, yeah, we'll go through the usual processes that we'll go through with everyone. We'll send you out a social worker. And the process with fostering is you get matched with a social worker who's independent of the agency. They evaluate you as a family. It's almost like a six-month counselling session, which I feel like everyone needs in their life, where you go over (laughs) all your different (laughs) dynamics and how you are raised and what Mm -hmm. makes you tick and what makes you happy and where your time's spent and all that kind of thing. Um, And so we um, were assigned a social worker and it was a guy, he was 27 years old and it was one of his first cases that he'd ever done. Wow. And he was just so cheerful and open and willing to like take us at face value as well and to hear what we had to say. Um, And that was one of the first of many things in those six months that confirmed that, okay, we're on the right road. Mm -hmm. And there's something I want to say off the back of that. Jamie and I have said throughout our marriage, which is um, God closes doors, you don't close doors. So you push on the door and God is the one who shuts it and Mm. opens it. You don't have a responsibility to say no to God. He's the one that says no to you if it's not right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we will always push on a door and go, 
God, is this you? Or is this something that we should be doing right now? And so that's kind of our attitude that we went into fostering. Okay, I can see in the Bible that it says that this is what we're supposed to do. I take take you, God, at your word when you say that true worship is to look after the orphan and widow in their distress. What does that mean? Okay, it could look like this. It could look like fostering. And so we're going to go for it. And God, I'd love it if you were the one that said, no, now's not the time. Mm. And within six months, which is one of the shortest I've ever come across, within six months, every single door to fostering had opened with a three panel with pretty much no hiccups at all. And yeah, we were approved. So were you approved before you'd even been married a year? Yeah. Goodness me. It is crazy, isn't it? It's actually crazy. The thing is, now that I'm saying it to you (laughs) as an almost 30 year old, I'm like, what on earth like (laughs) yes completely ridiculous but that i think i need to like i need to say this because it was also an obedience move yeah tom ruth is listening it was an (laughs) obedience move because i grew up in a family that meant that i actually wanted for nothing Mm. and if you look at the bible it says that those who have much will be asked of much Mm. and will be judged according to that Mm. as well and with that comes a really big responsibility because I'd never been in a position where I could sing hand on heart break my heart for what breaks yours that was a biggie Mm -hmm. Um, and also when you ask God big prayers like the one that I prayed which is take me to a place God where the only thing that I can depend on is you be prepared that he will answer that prayer Mm. because you can't pray those things and expect him to not come not to answer them and he really did and he allowed us to be foster carers at Mm. that young age and it was the first time in my life where the only thing that jamie and i could rely on the same because jamie had a very similar childhood to me the only thing we could rely on as a couple was the lord for guiding for how to do this for how to interact with social services for how to grow up way faster than we most people would at 21 yeah and that was yeah that was really important for me it was an act of obedience i said yes you've asked me to do this i'll say yes i'll walk through this door you show me what you show Mm. me what this is going to look like Mm. yeah how quickly then were you matched with a child Mm. so i think that's the um funny thing about the social care system is there are so many children but your first child is often the hardest to be placed only because lots of foster carers might say yes to one child and then they're likely to give it to the carer with the most experience or is better matched with that child Mm. and so we were sent a couple of referrals through um uh in the summer this was august don't know what the year is at this point 2016 august 2016 this is we've been approved in the june and we we'd say yes to some no to others so we had some referrals where they'd be like two kids or an eight-year-old and we'd read it and we're like "Mm, not sure um and eventually we were waiting another another month kind of rolled in and jamie says to me i think we should just start saying yes and the (laughs) referrals come in i'm like okay so this is the so he says to me one day we're going to start saying yes when the referrals come in and the next day we get a referral for three children under the age of five and i'm like babe are are you sure and he's like (laughs) yeah so we actually said yes to (laughs) three under five sent it back and 
thank the Lord we did not get mm-hmm. three children under five. Um, but that was where we ended up being out with the referral process. And then um, I said, okay, I want to... Um, I just feel really kind of uncomfortable about this. I'm not working at this point. We've been waiting a while. Let's pray. And a friend said to me, I think that the 1st of October is going to be a really significant date for you um, and when you're going to meet your foster child, a child that will be in your care. And I said, okay, it's a bit random. It's very specific. Mm. Um, And this was the last week in September, 1st of October. I looked at the calendar. 1st of October is a Saturday. Nothing in social services happens on a Saturday. So it got to about the Wednesday and we got a referral through for a 10-year-old girl and it was about five lines no information other than loves music loves craft loves riding her bike those are three things that me and jamie really really love i was like we're gonna say yes to this now 10 was actually the top end of what we thought was at all sensible yeah <laughs> sensible is uh, an interesting one to use of it yeah it's true um and so we said yes um i had her initials that was it so i had initials and four lines about her Hmm. and it came to light I can't say lots about her story but it came to light that um, they've been trying to match her with a family uh, for a very long time that the home that she was at was no longer appropriate for her and it was time to move her but because of her life experiences and the fact that she needed to be a solo placement it had been very difficult to place her so they said yes to us on the Wednesday and then the Thursday they you know, thought it might be a good idea to give her a chance to understand what was happening and the Friday pack. And so we thought we were going to meet her on the Friday, but she'd been with her previous foster carers for quite a long time and they'd asked, could she have the weekend? And we said, yeah, that's fine. And so we actually met her in Costa Coffee on Saturday, 1st of October, um, without a social worker, just the foster carer and, and myself on the 1st of October. And then she moved in on the following Monday. Goodness me. Mm. So are you still 21 at this point? Uh, Have you had another birthday? Yes, still 21. And Jamie's the same? He is 22. So 22 and 21-year-olds fostering a 10-year-old as your first experience of fostering. And children and parenting in general. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness me, it is wild, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. You're right. So, I mean... This is a question that I'm sure you could talk all day about, really. But can you can you give us like a snapshot of what life was like for you when she starts living with you? And I imagine it was a steep learning curve. Yeah. And yeah. just talk us through a bit of. No, that's a good question. That. I don't, for one minute, want to paint this as some sort of fairy tale i think that would be doing a disservice Mm. to what it is we were doing and what it is that these children have been through yes it was a journey of adventure and Mm -hmm. like stepping out but when it comes to it and you're coming down to it you're working and loving working with and loving children who have been through things that they should never ever have to go through but when we first met our first foster child um she was about the size of a six-year-old, so I could hold her on my hip. She weighed absolutely nothing. I could literally like mm. fling her over my shoulder if I wanted to. And she came into our house and she sat down at our piano. Mm. Um, and she just started playing. I've got lovely photos and videos of her doing that. Um, and in that first week, 
we went through so much that first year but that first week god was so kind to both of us because she had uh christian heritage and by that i mean very very loose yeah loose but i had the go ahead the green light to talk about god in my house Mm -hmm. which in certain situations with certain foster children you can't do that and so we'd have worship music playing playing all around the house always in general and i could see very early on that she was very whimsical like me she loved to sing she loved to kind of float around and dance and i came into the kitchen one afternoon after she'd been at school and a song called we dance by stephanie gretzinger was on mm-hmm. um which tom knows i mean those albums anyway have like journeyed my whole life with me basically one after mm. the other have been really um important um for where i'm at with my faith and where i'm at in our journey but I came down, yeah, and she was dancing to this song. Um, And the words of the bridge are, I will lock eyes with the one who's chosen me, the one who gives me joy for morning, Mm. set my feet to dancing. It's along those lines, isn't it? And it was like time stood still and gave me something, even in amongst what we were about to go through together for the next year, where me and her bonded, and I saw that the Holy Spirit was so evident and so present in her life and in our home. And it was probably one of the moments that I'll remember forever. It was just so special and made me cry. And she was just dancing and dancing. Um, and that opened up so many conversations mm. about what it meant to lock eyes with the father who actually loved you and lock eyes with somebody who would literally do a um a swap would take something from you and replace it and so that was a really important moment because then you go into a year of learning each other different culture different accents (laughs) she had a beautifully strong accent (laughs) what they were um uh, different ways of behaving severe trauma Mm beyond anything um and that really affects your brain i don't know how much you know about um the makeup of the brain and the pathways in a child's brain but if they've experienced trauma um you have the front and the back of your brain and you literally have no ability to think clearly in the front of your head and that's where you make all your logical decisions Mm -hmm. and so for children often who've come into care because they've had traumatic experience they're working from the back of their brain and they're just firing safety and warning signals to you the whole time and so you're very reactive in your personality and you're out to defend um you might have heard of like fight flight freeze yeah yeah there's another one that i've added called fawn all right it's one that's more related actually to fitting the mold or people pleasing or being adaptive a bit like a chameleon yeah and that can actually be a very very difficult thing because if you've got someone who's people pleasing and adapting like a chameleon you never get an authentic self Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah and so actually that was probably the hardest thing in our home is trying to press into what's real here who are you how can i get to who you are and know that you are enough and you don't need to pretend to be somebody that you're not. And so that was probably my like intimate journey with her in the first year is just working out who you are and building a trust there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say trust, layer one of let's trust an adult for the first time ever in my life, yeah. age 10, I suppose. And I think for Jamie and I, because come back to the question about like, okay, what was that first year like? Um, just like you said, steep learning curve, working it out how we're going to do this together um 
how I'm going to take on the bulk of the care. Jamie was just fantastic. I can't honestly so much honour for my husband. He is my rock. Like he he knew that I was being the primary carer. He could have no direct connection at that time based on um, her situation and how she responded to things. So I was doing all of the kind of face-to-face work with her and then mm. he was my person and you need a person mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're foster care you really need a person and we were just a good just a good team in it mm-hmm. um when it came to stuff like that um it was also ridiculously hard you used a word last week uh, phrase messy glory that's what you said mm-hmm. to me yeah maybe something like well something like that messy there was glory. ever a way to describe what fostering is it's that messy glory mm. it's like something you wouldn't change for the world and you do again, even though it's caused you emotional harm. Mm. But I can't really express to you how it's just emotional harm and it's harm that you are strong enough as an adult, especially one that knows Jesus, can get through and it's worth it and you have to do it again (laughs) (laughs) because it's nothing in comparison to what they've experienced in their lives. Um, Mm. And so that's why you go again and go again and some people say that phrase, I always find it very, very funny. I could never do that because I'd love them too much or I'd fall in love and then they'd leave. Mm. Like, that's the point. Yeah. That's actually the point. So that first year really was, how can we build a connection? How can we show you that we're trustworthy? Yeah. Mm. And I, I don't know how possible it is to answer this question, but how did she respond to that? And, and what kind of journey did she go on with you guys? I think overall... I mean, there's so there's so much about this story of us, particularly. Overall, one of friendship between me and her. Mm-hmm. So she was very quick to find nurture from me, very quick to want parental figures in us that she hadn't had, um, which was hard. I think it was hard for our families to get that because we were at this strange place in our lives where we didn't really fit anywhere because we were young and so still were very involved in our own families and being parented and then also parenting a 10 year old not a baby and it was very very complicated um but overall I think even like my mum and dad and Jamie's parents would say that there was this friendship and there was this ease when she was playing and immersed in our huge family mm-hmm. that was very real and that was her most real moments I think when she was playing with the dogs or playing with the other cousins in our family or out on the beach like we just saw her come alive and we saw the real her which was really beautiful that she felt safe enough not she wouldn't necessarily felt safe the whole time but safe enough to actually smile for real. I, I even remember like the first time she actually laughed for real because she used to have this fake laugh. Mm. And then there was one time where she'd, she actually laughed and I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> that's amazing because it's not this like, oh, I need to laugh long so that people might like me. It was yeah. like, I actually have joy right now. I can mm. actually laugh. So that was mm. really special. Beautiful. Mm. Were there any other moments that kind of stick out in your mind as like, the high points and the mm. breakthrough moments and the moments where you're like, this is why we do this. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we always, we always called her um, the butterfly girl um, because I think that perfectly sums up what happens in all of our lives, but also with children who've been in care, is they go on a journey where actually they've experienced things that 
were really awful and then with us we feel that she was in a cocooning phase mm. so she was in a phase where she was wrapped up and safe and advocated for and learning undoing redoing becoming and I remember one day when we were just sat having a coffee somewhere I think at a park and she just turns to me and said I'm a really happy hoppy <laughs> she said <laughs> to me we people call us the hoppies because our surname's Hopkins okay. she yeah. said I'm a really happy hoppy and I was like oh mm. yes and like that was just really genuine and she knows and knew and knows that like she is always a part of our family mm. um no matter where she ends up or where she is now like um that that's really true um so that was a real high and then also just seeing her um achieve things that she was really good at she was an incredible story writer um she used to write her own songs just i'd find like lying around the house these little lyrics or stories and um just seeing like that side of her come out like a side that can be creative because that's another thing that's really stopped when you're when you're in a place of pain or um (laughs) we know this even when we're not in pain it's like i'm just stop right now i've got a block and i don't know what to do but like when you're in pain you really can't create very well Mm. um um it's only when you go through healing that then you start to create out of your pain which is interesting isn't it and so i can so we saw that we saw that out of her pain she was using it and she'd write lyrics that represented her journey and what she'd been through Mm. um and that was really beautiful to see as well and also i think um how she started to trust other adults so she trusted jamie she Mm. really did trust jamie Mm. um and they'd go on bike rides and just had a really positive relationship i think as well yeah good so how long was she with you in total uh three and a half years okay Mm. and so are you happy talking about how that came to a conclusion Mm. so um children come into care for so many different reasons don't they and um you always have to be evaluating is your home the right place for them to thrive are the people in your home the right people to enable that child to be safe and to thrive and um we had emmeline emmeline was born in this she was about a year and a half old when we uh looked at both children and decided that actually it was better off that um she moved on um and that was really really difficult um because we wanted to protect both girls we wanted to love both girls well and that's where love doesn't always look like what we think it should look like yeah so for us like it was just putting in a boundary actually saying we've taken this as far as we can take it um and it's now becoming um unsafe and unhealthy for everyone but obviously in the moment you don't want to say that you just want to keep going no matter what jamie says something really important which is that well, A, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, and also that when things end, the outcome is not on you. And I think that's so interesting that we think things like a child moving from your home or something coming as far as it can go is a terrible outcome or that surely has to be the worst thing that could happen here or how could we possibly make this work so that it continues but Jamie brought real wisdom yeah he said that just because it's ended doesn't mean it's wrong and it doesn't mean that the outcome will be negative and what we've seen from us 
finding a new home for her, for the child that was in our care, um, is that that is her next step. That is part of her butterfly journey. That actually it was time for her to... Sounds I don't find it at all cheesy, so I'm not going to say it's cheesy. <laughs> that actually it was time for her to fly. It was time for her to actually be in a place as a young woman in the right home. And we'd done the work of safety and now it was time for that next transition and I think Jamie was just really wise in that in coming to that kind of conclusion which we kept quite close I think to ourselves for a while because I think a lot of people around us who were very invested were deeply upset and deeply confused and didn't necessarily know the ins and outs and and won't ever Mm -hmm. so it was very quietly in our hearts that God was being very very kind to us in letting us know that this is his outcome that she belongs to the lord that he's got her and that was very very freeing for us in making the decision to say okay it's time for the next place for her Mm. um which i think is just really important in in any part of caring for somebody who is vulnerable or any part of caring for somebody who needs you is being okay with the fact that you don't have to be everything and also you might not be the next ticket to their next bit of their freedom, which I think is really interesting, isn't yeah. it? And he, Jamie had felt that felt all the way through that if there was always something better, we would never be proud enough to keep going for the sake of keeping going. Yeah. So if we thought there was something better than us or there was a better place for her to be, then that was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it got to that point where we just acknowledged that and, and amongst lots of other circumstances and just made the call that that was right and it was right. Yeah. In terms of where you're at now, is fostering still kind of on your radar? Are there other ways that you're looking to live out what's clearly quite a Mm. a specific calling for you guys? Mm. I think it will always be something that I can't not do. So when I was reading about Jesus and when I met Jesus and he changed my life, um, you hear all these kind of slogans that might sound cheesy, but they're not. It's the, if not, now, then, when, if not, you, then who, or whatever it is. Hmm. And whilst that is just a slogan, what does it actually mean for your life? Are you going to fill the gap? Do you have a spare bedroom? And to me, it comes down to capacity, not just calling. So I don't think this is applicable to just a certain type of person or someone who feels called to fostering. I'm not really sure what that is because if we look at the pages of scripture in the New Testament, it just says so clearly that we should be, um, I don't even like the phrase radically hospitable because it shouldn't be radical at all we should just be hospitable and that doesn't that might play out in fostering that could play play out in different ways couldn't it for different people but for me it's very clear that I don't need to overthink this I have a spare bedroom I fill it I have capacity beyond what I can conjure up within myself and that's because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in me lives in you lives in all of us and so we can go beyond what feels normal and so at the moment um that's looked like a beautiful thing with having our amazing group round from church every week or feeding people. Um, but more recently, that's um, kind of landed in our laps an opportunity to host um, friends of ours from the Ukraine that we knew before. That's happened very, very quickly. Um, and so we are currently hosting a mum and daughter. Mm-hmm. And that's come very naturally to me. 
in terms of having people in my house because I'm used to it and I suppose that's how it's playing out at the moment with the two kids um and yeah we'll love it we'll get in a rhythm of doing that and that's what it's looking like right now yeah and then we know that God's got stuff on the cards for this specific um I think we noticed a gap when we were fostering to do with um supporting foster families and people who've adopted children it's incredibly hard work it's worth every minute of the hard work that it is because those children are worth everything um but it doesn't take away from the job that it is for parents who are Mm -hmm. raising children who've experienced trauma and um so we would love to be part of in the future providing retreat respite rest Mm -hmm. um for families that need it basically yeah Yeah. so last question when Mm -hmm. you're on your deathbed looking back at your long life well you mentioned this word earlier i don't know if you wanted to raise again but but legacy Mm, i love that word what are you hoping your legacy is i want my life to look like one that held everything i had loosely so that others might hold on to jesus tightly And I've got a sign that some I got commissioned that says um, there's a place at this table for you. It sits in my kitchen. And I just want everyone that I know to feel that there's a place at my table, even when I'm old. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can be weird like I am and different and unique and say lots of things or say nothing. Um, and I'd love my children to know that that's the culture of our family, the culture of our marriage. Um, yeah. Great. Good answer. Fostering. Yeah. Rosie. Go on, Rosie. Flipping heck. They're so great, aren't they? <laughs> they are. I'd asked them a while ago if they'd be willing to do this. Because, you know, for those who haven't figured this out, this podcast has been in the works a long time. <laughs> um, and at the time, it still hadn't been that long since their child had moved on. And so they were like, it's a little bit raw still. Mm-hmm. I was like, no worries at all. Don't worry about it. And then I was sort of closest, close, close-ish to where um, they live a couple of months ago for work. And so met Rosie for a coffee. And she's like, oh, I'd probably be happy to do that episode now if you want. It's like, sweet. And then they happened to be coming to Cardiff for a weekend. And so I was like, yeah, that worked well. <laughs> so anyway, all that to say that she came round... And it was our day off, so Ruth was there too, which was really nice that she got to sit in on it. But Ruth was just a blubbering mess on the other <laughs> sofa. <laughs> just like crying the whole way through this episode. Yeah. 
Mm. So what were your initial reactions? So I, like Steve said to me, um, oh, what was it about this time? And I, I just said something like, oh, about this couple. Um, and the lady was 21 when they adopted a 10-year-old. And he was like, well, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it, it would be if it wasn't all Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I said to him, you've made what looks like terrible ideas many a time from the outside, but it's because you feel that God's telling you to do it. Mm. And, um, and it's born fruit. And it's the same for Rosie, isn't it? Like Rosie mm. and what was her husband's name again? Jamie. Jamie. Yeah, that's right, Jamie. It does sound like a terrible idea, doesn't it? Yeah. If Jesus doesn't tell you to do it. <laughs> do you know what's funny as well? Because we're the same age. At the time, I knew it was unusual. But you know, you always feel older than you actually are. Yeah. And so at the time, it didn't really hit me, I don't think, how extreme <laughs> radical that is. Yeah. And, and it was like having this conversation all these years later, it did just hit me. And I was like, this is wild. I can't believe you did this. <laughs> yeah. At the time, you were probably just like, well, she's an adult now. Yeah, that, exactly. That, once you're an adult, you're yeah. an adult. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it is, I know, I think I said this here in the conversation, but it is all she's ever wanted to do mm. and been gifted to do. And she's absolutely the kind of person who can pull it off. Yeah. <laughs> I liked what she said as well about fostering not necessarily being a calling Mm -hmm. like just read scripture and we're to look after the orphan and the widow so however you do that that's what we're asked to do isn't it yeah I thought that was really challenging actually yeah she said for her it's not about calling but capacity yeah it's not about what are you called to do, but here's what God has called us all to do. Yeah. And what is your capacity to live that out? Mm. Yeah, super challenging. It's so easy to just, uh, I'm speaking for myself here, make excuses and rationalise things. and um, But the way of Jesus is radical, isn't it? Mm. You just can't, mm. like, if we're being obedient, it's always going to look radical one way or another. Yeah. Yeah, like every one of these stories has looked radical in one way or another, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But I guess that's the thing, though, isn't it? It is, it is capacity, but it is also calling, because she very clearly has a call. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, for lots of people, I, yeah, I think fostering a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, like, that is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> when you're, like, six months married, like, that's not something that everyone... Yeah. would have the capacity to do, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's an interesting thing to think about in terms of, like, does your calling make you more aware of your capacity? Because if that's the call that Rosie has always felt in her life, then as soon as there's even the smallest space, mm. that's going to that's gonna be capacity for her, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas for, like, for myself, I... I like, that would be really hard to foster a kid. Like, that's not something that I feel called to. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't see, I wouldn't be looking for capacity. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And and she kind of um, 
specified more towards the end as well about how it looks different for different people, didn't she? Yeah. And so I think yeah. it's probably important to clarify that as well, that the there is like a, a big picture general command just to do justice yeah. and to care for the orphan and the widow mm. and to be hospitable and all that. But for each individual life, that will have more specific calling of how you work yeah. that out. Mm. And often that's based on your capacity. But I even like really appreciate what she said as well about how even our capacity isn't just based on us, but the fact that yeah, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead mm. lives in us. Mm. And so it's like, I felt like even that moment made sense of so much of their lives for me. Mm. Of they're not just thinking about like what are we able to do, but actually what are we able to step out and do beyond our own ability, mm. yeah. knowing that God is in us and with us and sustaining us as we take these yeah. uh, risky, radical steps into the unknown. Yeah, but she even says, doesn't she, that for a period of time their hospitableness, what's the hospitality? Hospitality. hospitality. <laughs> 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 yes, that's what. Um, <clears throat> has looked like hosting their group and having people consistently over and just opening their house to people. Mm -hmm. So even that in itself, isn't it? If we all used our homes in that way, in just like they're just open for people to be in. And and I think that's quite a hard thing to develop. I think that's quite a hard culture to kind of create where people do feel comfortable to just be in your home freely then that in itself would look radical, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and even just that is very unusual in our culture, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, just to host people and and to not need to have your house looking perfect every time that anyone comes around. (laughs) Like, all of that stuff is unusual. Yeah. I had a neighbour around the other day, and, like, her house is always pristine, and my house with a big dog and a five-month-old is not. <laughs> and I just kept apologising and she kept going, it's fine. She's a Polish lady. She kept going, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then I go around her house and it's looking amazing. And I'm like, oh. But the point is that she came around, she had a cup of tea, we had a mm. chat. She was able to practice her English, you know. That was the important bit, not how much fur was on the floor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I guess that's what true hospitality is, isn't it? And that's the difference between having, you know, having someone round for a cup of tea and having and fostering a 10-year-old. Like, the big difference is that true hospitality is having somebody in your world. The more immersed in your world it is, the more hospitable it is, I suppose, isn't it? And the more Christ-like it is. I mean, Jesus spent three years with... 12 disciples like really close mm. like sharing every moment really immersive yeah and when the new testament talks about hospitality the word is i think it's something like philoxenia which is like so philo is love xenia stranger so it's the opposite of xenophobia which is mm. fear of the stranger yeah and so hospitality is stranger love. And I think, like, again, not to bash this, but often we can think that just, like, having our church friends around 
is ticking the hospitality box, <laughs> which is a lovely and good thing to do and carry on. But it's it's yeah. not stranger love. Mm. And so I think there's even a challenge in that as well of sometimes we can think that just by being relational people or having people in our house that we're being hospitable, it's not necessarily living up to Scripture's ideal of yeah. hospitality, which is love of the stranger. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's a challenge in that as well. And and I think, like, to bring it back around, fostering an adoption is just, like, one of the most obvious illustrations of that being the case. This is a literal stranger mm-hmm. who you're having to be permanently with you 24-7 <laughs> in your life. You have to care for completely. Yeah. Yeah. And be responsible for mm-hmm. and help to flourish and deal with trauma. Like all of this stuff. I like what she said as well about um, some people say that they don't want to foster because it will be too hard mm-hmm. to let them go. And I've I've said that myself, like our intention later on is to adopt. But I've said myself, like fostering, I don't think I could cope with it. Mm. And what she said about, well, that's the point. And um, my mother-in-law um, has fostered and just before she moved just as we said we were pregnant she was really sad um love her but she she lives in dorset now and just before she moved she had a little boy she was looking after for like from one week old to 18 months and he just went he just you know left um her care and just seeing obviously the heartache that that brings it kind of reinforced in me like I don't want to do that. I really mm-hmm. don't want to do that. But somebody's got to do it, haven't they? And mm. the person who the person who is willing to fully embrace that child and fully deal with the heartbreak that comes is going to do that child more good than the person who's guarded because yeah. they know an end is coming. Yeah. Um and that's the sacrifice. That is a beautiful sacrifice. So um, it did make me reassess and think it's not about like the whole thing is it's not about me. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And again, in that she said, like it's going to cause you emotional pain, but it's just emotional pain. And as an adult, especially an adult filled with the spirit, you can deal with it. Yeah. It, again, that I was just like, oh, like <laughs> what a blow to the gut, you know? Because it's just these like it's these reasons that we use to write ourselves off yeah and sometimes it just takes that like yes it's gonna be yeah. hard it's the point you can deal with it yeah <laughs> and, like, okay. and the idea of it's just emotional pain like that is so countercultural. yeah because our culture yeah. is like your emotion Avoid is all, all about your well-being you know yeah. your emotion and is 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 your idol you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think the those principles are so countercultural, but they are also applicable in pretty much every part of our lives, aren't they? Mm-hmm. In terms of like, if you think about that idea of like, well, it's only emotional pain. What, what stuff do we avoid that actually we should be doing just because it might hurt us? Mm. So, so even if that just is going. Like like building deeper relationships with people, 
Because mm-hmm. because I think a lot of time we avoid that because well, but what if they hurt me? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And even like I was thinking about what she said right at the start about when she was in China, um, and the guy getting on the floor and singing to that girl who had cerebral mm. palsy, and like I was sat on the train going to work and I had my <laughs> headphones on. And I was listening to it, and I had to stop. Listen, I had to like turn it off because I was like, "I'm literally gonna like break down on this train," <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because that's so like it's like what we've talked about before about insecurities walking into a room and being like, "Here I am." Mm-hmm. Securities walking into a room and being there you are, and it just made me think. Like obviously for for Rosie and Jamie, it's so clear how that has worked itself out in terms of them fostering but like for for the for people who aren't in that position or don't have that capacity or don't feel called to that or or whatever how like what does that still look like Mm -hmm. and especially if we're living in in what Rosie said about like our capacity isn't just our capacity that opens so many doors yeah I don't know Mm -hmm. it's challenging isn't it because I think at, at the same time it's easy I think for me it'd be easy to be like, oh, so everybody should be fostering and that's the way that we express this and mm-hmm. then kind of forget about it. Whereas actually it's not it's not like a, oh, look at the horizon. One day when I'm able to foster, mm-hmm. then I'll be able to express this. Like, what does this look like today? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And I think, like like you say about, you know, the, the awkward person in the office or whatever it is, just thinking, who are the people on the margins mm. in my life and around me and in the spheres in which I live? Who are those people on the edge of things? And who are the strangers? Who are the disconnected? Who are the hard to love, hard mm. to like, hard to talk to? Mm. Um, yeah, and what does love look like mm. in those places? To come back to the... The guy in China. It just got me thinking again about how there are these formative moments in mm. our lives. You know, it's one of the things that's come up a lot. And just thinking, like for that guy that day with you know these newbies coming to visit, from the sounds of things, it doesn't seem like he was the kind of guy that was trying to blow them away. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, or give some great speech about the work they're doing and the significance of it. It sounds like he just cracked on and did what he does. Mm. And I wonder how aware or unaware he was of how impactful that moment was on these young people in the room. Yeah, and just thinking about the young people in our lives, you know, and living with an awareness that there are moments that they will witness that mm. will be super impactful for them mm. that we won't even realise are impactful. Yeah. You know, similar for me, like with, I've said this lots over the years, with my dad, there are a few moments throughout my life where he just said one sentence to me <laughs> that, that like honestly changed my life or shaped my life in some significant way. And when he said that sentence, he wasn't planning in his head, I'm going to say something right now, it's going to stick with you forever. <laughs> like, he just said what came to mind, he just was who he is, mm. and and it shaped me, you know. And I, I don't really know what we do with that, but <laughs> just to, 
live with that awareness that like who we are as people is an example to the younger people around us and mm-hmm. the things that we say and the things that we do, the way that we treat the people on the margins, like this stuff is all noticed. Yeah. Yeah. And ends up having an impact. Yeah. Even the stuff that we consider just little and insignificant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I suppose for the in terms of the people on the margins or what have you and fostering and adopting it's all caring for people who can't really give you as much back yeah it's um it reminds me of a proverb and i can't remember exactly how it goes um but it's like something about like um you know somebody's character from how they care how how they care for their animals or something along those lines (laughs) and the whole point is animals can't really do anything for you they can't really give you anything back um they're they're powerless in terms of your relationship with them you're powerful Mm -hmm. and not to call people on the margins or children animals (laughs) (laughs) at all but it's a similar sort of thing of there's a power dynamic there where in other circumstances people on the margins have experienced a negativity of that power dynamic Mm -hmm. i think of one of my friends who talks about how um people were really horrible to her she she struggles with people who pretended to be her friends i've heard of somebody talk about somebody who had um tuesday friends because that's when they would get their benefits and their friends would appear on a tuesday Mm and spend all their money and then disappear for the rest of the week and in those like in that sort of power dynamic where you look like you're the one that's served or you are not look like where you're the one that's serving where you're the one that's caring and giving and not expecting anything back that is so different to what the world sees what Mm. those marginalized people see and my experience of my friendship with this person who said, you know, people really hurt her is that she is a wicked sense of humor. She's great fun to be around. And, and I have got a lot out of our friendship. You know, it's not it, it to me now. It just feels like just a friendship, mm-hmm. but to others, people have said, Oh, it's great how you spend so much time and how you, I, I don't spend that much time anymore. Sadly, I need to, correct that actually um new baby and all but it's not an excuse but like um how you invest in that person and I'm like they're just my friend Mm -hmm. and it's brilliant and it's beautiful Mm -hmm. and I suppose when you foster as well people will say you know how great it is how well you're doing how what good thing you're doing and it is true but the day-to-day is not going to feel like that the day-to-day is just going to feel like well that's our norm now you know that's just us caring for a child because at this point in time they are you know our child so I suppose in a similar vein how many things are we currently doing that people look at and say well that's really different but it is actually just our norm and we don't even see it anymore Mm. that's what I think that's part of what it means to be becoming more and more like christ to be made in the image of god yeah is to be is to just be doing it naturally and not and not even thinking like you say not even thinking it through yeah yeah it's like people saying to jesus like oh jesus is so good of you to hang out with those fishermen and tax collectors <laughs> and 
people like, there's a great project you got going on there. And Jesus is like, I've called you friends. Yeah. <laughs> and the alternative is the Pharisees. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a lack of worrying about yourself or like worrying about what people will think, isn't there? In terms of like, like it's easy to act based on how we'll be perceived isn't it so so exactly what you're saying oh well this is a this is a good thing to do whereas like the you know the guy with that child like you say I don't think he was trying to like do anything radical or crazy but it's a natural outpouring isn't it of if if you're in relationship with God and you are aware of how loved you are and aware of how loved everybody else is then that does become a natural response, I guess. And almost like, I guess my point is how that's almost like the crucial bit, isn't it? It has to come from that relationship. Otherwise it, otherwise it does become about me and about how I'm perceived and about what people will think. But again, I think it's easy for us to see the, the result and go after the result rather than going after the relationship that causes the result. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> and even going after the kind of heart that wants the relationship in the first place as yeah. well, isn't it? And mm. Yeah, it's not jumping straight to, what do I do? <laughs> mm. But first, how do I become the kind of person who yeah. prioritises the sorts of relationships that Jesus did and, yeah. and yeah. actually loves people <laughs> yeah because I guess that's the thing with Rosie it's like it's easy to see to like hear the age that they started fostering and think oh wow they were super young and obviously they were but like when she tells her story this heart for children has been growing since she was tiny I wonder as well so you know you say everybody has crazy dreams when they're kids I wonder as well whether it's just that she had the gumption to follow through on it mm. so when she saw an email in the back of a book yeah. <laughs> yeah she was like i'm gonna send an email and you like i would i would not have done that <laughs> how different my life would be if i had that attitude from the age of what 16 was she 16 17 yeah mm. and maybe that's something as well when we're talking to our young people and encouraging our young people my natural in instinct is to protect them like just because this person wrote a book doesn't mean that they're a good person like doesn't mean that they're trustworthy yeah doesn't mean that you know you, this is a safe thing for you to do have you got a grown-up to go with you mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. and obviously we need to protect our young people but not at the expense of them following the dreams that god's put in their hearts Hey friends, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Emerging Stories podcast. If you enjoyed it, why not send it to a friend or post it to your socials? And if you're wanting to track with us, give us a follow on whatever platform you're listening to this on, as well as our Facebook and Instagram. Cheers.